So I started with this uh, this verse last week, and and we're just going to keep going with it as a reminder. This is all scriptures from Second Timothy three is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The idea being that as we mature, and the older I get, the realize that I'm not done yet. That we want to be fully mature. So um, the story that helped me most to understand the value of maturity was told by a 16-year-old in our youth group many years ago as we were introducing this concept of discipleship and why there was any motivation at all to grow in maturity. I mean, why not just come to faith in Christ, um, go to church a few times, and then try not to sin too much and wait till this is all over and go to heaven? versus a life that leans into being molded in the image of Jesus day by day, trying to become more mature in him. So she came up to me and she said, and some of you have heard this before, and a few of you are in the room when she said it, that she said, I finally figured this out. It's like the roller coaster at King's Dominion, or maybe she was talking about, um, what's the other one in Williamsburg? Um, Bush Gardens with uh, a Yogi Bear for the height level on the roller coaster, he's talking about one of those older ones, and how if you're not as tall as Yogi, you can't go on the ride. And she said, that's what I'm thinking about when you're talking. And I was, okay. Um, and she said, yeah, because uh, they put that bar over you, and those are the commands of Jesus to hold you in place. And, and the roller coaster ride is life, because she's only 16, but she said, it goes up and down a lot, you know, and turns and twists, and you need the commands of Christ to keep you in your seat. And she said, and if you're not mature enough in Christ, rather than that bar helping you stay in place, you're too little, and that thing smacks you in the face. So while you're going through this difficult time, and you're anxious and worried, you read the scripture that says, do not be anxious. So it's smacking you even more, she said. So the more you grow in Jesus, the better actually you are able to enjoy the ride. I thought was insightful for a 16-year-old and was good enough to motivate me for the last quarter century to do this kind of teaching about maturity. So that's a working analogy. I don't know where you fit on the roller coaster or how you sit in the seat, but all of us have something to grow, I'm sure, in that we have something to learn. So the scriptures are our main thing. I'm going to keep uh, the doc thing. I'm working on it uh, with the, even as the elders and women's council, we talked about it. I didn't read this in a book. I worked on the Chesapeake Bay as a teenager, and I thought of that when I, I realized uh, different streams of Christianity when I became a believer. I obviously joined the evangelical stream, which I appreciate, especially for the love of scripture love of scripture and memorizing scripture. And I realized that one of the things that we're doing a good job as, as evangelicals, is, is particularly with kids, helping them uh, learn what the scripture is. But there's another piece of not just what to think, but how to think. Because as I spent most of my ministry career in youth ministry, we lose a lot of people at age 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, because they don't know how to think when they get out into the world. So the other thing that I recognized was if we don't put this together in a framework that supports real life, then they may memorize the scripture, but then not live out the truth or grow or get confused. So the idea with the peers 
is those pillar posts are the 10 core doctrines. And doctrine is a word that may not appeal to us, but it's really important. It's what you believe and you live your life on it. I'll give you an example. So the first one on the right is the scripture, which we're touching on here. The second one is man. So what you think about man really matters. If you think man is an animal, you're going to think of yourself and people around you differently. If you think of a man, any man or woman, as a being with eternal destiny in God's kingdom, and that there is eternal destiny, whether with the Lord or without, whether heaven or hell, if you think that, it's going to change the way you live. It can give us hope. Because if you're someone in our society, as you get older, we're supposed to get sadder. You know, that life is kind of passed us by. Well, all sorts of, of phrases that make youth the only way to be. If we saw ourselves as eternal beings who were growing more and more in Jesus' uh, image and then getting closer and closer to the day that we really would see him face to face, then getting older could feel entirely different. So what your view of man is matters. It's a doctrine that you live out tomorrow, Monday morning, how you think about yourself and your others in your life. So these doctrines, whether you know it or not, you're living your life out on them. So we want to strengthen them and learn how to think about them. And the other reason that I really think that the Lord put it on my heart was we're in a period of calm, our church and also our society. But I don't know that as evangelicals we did that great with the pandemic or the last presidential election. So we have another election coming up, and we don't know what's ahead of us. But if we don't know how to think about minor doctrines and major doctrines, the evangelical church fractured. Some have said into six different categories during that season. And you got to the point where it used to be that evangelicals generally thought the same. And you may have been in this spot, depending on where you landed on certain issues. You may have been there and looking at someone thinking, okay, this is a mature, Bible-believing Christian that I've known a long time, and I have no idea how they can follow Jesus and think the way they're thinking. It, it just started to happen, and it caught us off guard. We need to have an ability to talk about what the major doctrines are and then what the catwalks I did that we described um, as expressions of those doctrines. So that's why we're hitting that um, pretty hard, and I sense that we just need to keep going over it because I would like the kids to leave when they do mature to be able to express the core beliefs of following Jesus, and it is important. So we're going to go into Ezra. We're in Ezra. This is the last verse I ended with, and we're going to go into Ezra 8, and this is called the Psalm of Ezra, and he talks about, blessed be the God of our fathers who put such a thing in the king's heart, and the idea, the Hebrew talks about actually putting it in the king's heart. So God putting it. And the key word in there in the Hebrew phrase has the concept of the word kneel. So um, to bless someone is to kneel down and see. So the picture that came to my mind was of a little kid coming in, someone actually kneeling down. And you know how people will do that to just get in front of a child and talk to a child. It's seeing them. It's stopping what you're doing. It's, it's turning towards them. And that's what the blessing is, that he's actually putting something in the king's heart. So one of the questions in our doctrine, so the first pier over there, pillar post on the left, is God the Father. What you believe about God the Father really matters. Do you believe that God is, in all practical manners, a clockmaker God? Did he wind up the universe and just leave you on your own? Or do you believe that God is interacting? Did he interact with people? Does he interact today? Right there, it's talking about God putting something in their heart. 
Um, for kids out there, uh, the analogy that came to my mind, I used to like setups, Lincoln Logs, not so much Legos. I know you guys like some of that. But I would set up all these cool worlds, and then I would, you know, set the guys up and, and turn them, you know. They needed to be turned and set up. So that's the picture I have, kids, when I think of God, you know, stepping down into our world and actually interacting with the setup we call life. So he puts this in the, in the king's heart. And he extends mercy to me before the kings and counselors, before all the king's mighty princes. And so I was encouraged. We're going to learn a lot about Ezra. And um, Ezra, this is one of the few books in the, in the whole scriptures that's written in the first person. So there's something we can learn. You get to see into his thinking as we go through this in a rare way in scripture. And we get to see how sold out he was for the Lord. Because he's encouraged. Why? Because he's encouraged because things about God that God wants to happen are starting to happen. When Jesus says, when talks about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the idea is that we would be so aligned that the things God would want to have happen, we would be excited about. When we start seeing those things happen, we get excited because we are lined up that our kingdom is seeking first the kingdom of God. And so he's encouraged as these truths are about to happen. And then there's this phrase that Ezra has, and I didn't study it in all of Scripture. I just looked at how much it shows up in just Ezra's writing. He likes this phrase, the hand of God, my God, was upon me. So um, the picture I had was of a dad just sort of guiding a child with, you know, hand on the shoulder. So this idea of the hand of the Lord upon me, and, and Ezra uses it a few times, that he doesn't see himself with God way in the distance. Like just, hey, good luck, man. Tell me how it goes. He's there right there with his hand upon the upon him as he goes through. So that's the picture. And then he starts gathering leading men um, to go as well. So what we'll learn about Ezra is that he's a scribe. He knows his scriptures. He spent, if you are a, a teacher, you spend a lot of time alone studying. We also know that he was in, connected well in the government. He may have been multi-gifted. So I don't mean, I don't know because I wasn't there with him. But I know if you spend a lot of time studying, you're not with people. Um, you are studying. And he, is, he knows the scriptures really well. And this is his chance to actually do something. So get excited with Ezra. All the stuff he read about Moses and all this stuff, Ezra is finally getting to do it. Like he is really leading the people out. And, you, and I can see his excitement. And like, I'm, I don't know if anyone's going to write about this. I'm going to keep my journal maybe. But, but I'm getting to do just like Moses, just like what I read about. This is my chance. So as he gathers people, see him excited. See him down at the local version of the corner pub, you know, talking to the leading. Hey, I'm going back. I mean, I'm going to go. Do you want to come? So gathering isn't just blowing a horn and they all show up because they've nothing's happened in 60 years or so since the last group. It's not like a bunch of people were probably waiting at, at the departure gate from Babylon to go, go with them. And he just said, right here, you know, group A, group B, and they got on the version of a plane back then and went. No, he had to go talk to them because these people were living life and they may not have been ever thinking of going back. And you'll see that he's got um, the heads of the father's household in the reign of King Artaxerxes. And he talks about, and there's a whole list that I didn't put up there, 
But um, one of them is the Sons of David. And this is an interesting, uh, as I read about it, he knows about the temple. He's really into that. You guys know that in the scripture, it talks a lot about the line of David. He doesn't say much. Because I don't know if he knew what to do with it. There hasn't been a lot. It says that the um, that he'll have someone on the throne forever. That the son of David will be on the throne forever. But the challenge is there hasn't been a son of David on the throne for maybe 150 years. So there's a not yet component of the fulfillment of the truth that he's trying to align to. But he does include someone of the line of David in this list. And so the, the names don't mean as much to us maybe, but if you were in that time, they would mean some more. If you compared this list with the list that went out years earlier, decades earlier with the first group, there are a lot of similarities in the family name. So it's reason to believe that they've got cousins and all. The picture I'd like you to have that, that helped me, so my uh, family's Irish, my great-grandfather came over. Um, some of you have been actually in this room, have been to the town where my family, Eric's been there, and Mark, you came, and Matt and Jamie and my kids went back to the little village that my great-grandfather left in Ireland. And so I know he left, and he came over here. It's been about that long, you know, maybe a hundred and some odd years, since my family lived in that village in Ireland. Like I said, the house is still there, it's not lived in. That's about what's gone on here. I mean, we are, we are well after uh, the Babylonian captivity, I and mean, we were just well over 100 years. A lot of time has passed. And even since what we read a couple chapters ago, it's been 60, 70 years since they've heard much. So you forget, you know, you forget as a... Um, just who your family is, but I have distant cousins that live in that village. They had cousins that were living in Jerusalem, and that's why I think some of the families are included that are in here. So he gathers by the river, and uh, they camp there for three days, and he looks among the people, and he found none of the sons of Levi there. So uh, Ezra is a, is a big-time student of the Scripture. He's trying to do things the right way. They're camping out, and um, you can imagine what the campout's like. You know, everybody's by this. We don't know where exactly this was. It might have been a canal or something, but it's a gathering spot. Uh, you know when you're going on the trip, if you, you, if you don't leave your house, if you're going on a long trip, you just keep going back and forth. And he said, hey, I got a great idea. Let's all meet at this place and gather there. So they're camping out. Try to put yourself in the spot of one of those families. You, um, you may have ar talked for a long time, argued over whether to go or not. You may have packed differently. Um, you're, you're there and, and one family that just made up their mind a few minutes earlier versus the family that has lists of camping. And I know there's different kinds of you out there that make lists and follow them and stuff. And, and then there's families like ours who decide a minute or two before and we're there and we start looking around getting ready for this four month journey thinking a water bottle would have been a good idea. Um, some of you guys in the room, remember we used to go camping at Hog Camp Gap, right? So that's what came to my mind. And when we would travel, uh, the kids were little, so Emma was here. I didn't talk to you first, but this won't be embarrassing. Um, and so uh, I try to talk to my kids first before I tell a story. <clears throat> but I forgot. So um, we would go camping. I'm on the phone with parents. We're meeting at Sheets. Uh, kids are running around, Emma and Liam, her older brother. 
And I wouldn't think about packing, and I wouldn't think about the kids packing. We get up to Hog Camp Gap, and I realize my kids are very different. Uh, Liam got up there with his telescope, his, his maps, because he knew he could see more from up on the mountain. Uh, Emma showed up as a two-and-a-half-year-old with bread, peanut butter, a knife, a cup. And I remember getting into the tent thinking, I didn't think this through very well. Emma, what did you bring? Because that's what we were going to eat. So there were those kinds of packers there at, at the side of this canal looking and thinking, hmm, we should have brought a chair or a blanket or, you know, it was a long trip that they were headed. So try to, these are real people. I think the thing that, that, that I try to do now with scriptures is, is get in there with Ezra and think, what was Ezra thinking? As much as we can know about him, how did it feel? How can we imagine it would feel? How, how many discussions happened that, remember uh, when I talked about the first wave, I talked about the yeah buts and the it'll-be's, right? The yeah buts had all the excuses and the it'll-be's were like, it'll be great. Well, they had now have heard word back from Jerusalem and it's not so great all the time. So the it'll-be's have a little bit more work to do. And if they did stay back and they're in this group from 60 years later, they're probably more descendants of the yeah buts because they didn't go. And so they're talking. You can imagine a dad saying, okay, we're just going to go camp out. I'm not saying we're going. I am not saying we're going yet. We're just going to camp out and see what that's like. And they're still talking late at night as to whether they're going. Then you may have people camping out, and then uncle shows up, and one aunt said, you have got to, they are really going. They are out there. They're taking the children on this journey. You can imagine grandparents go and say, you are leaving with the kids? That kid's two years old. Where are you going to get diapers? Have you thought about that? They don't, they don't have Walmarts, you know, on this trek. You can imagine late night discussions about whether to go or not. It's a much smaller group. 40 plus thousand last time, around 5,000 this time much more realistic about what they're going to because they've heard. And we, when we read in Nehemiah, we hear that people come back and forth. It's a long trek. It's 900 miles. So it's not an often thing. But they're hearing that, yeah, it's not going so great there. So try to put yourself in that camp out situation and think about what you would have done. So he notices there are no Levites there. Well, he knows there's a right way to do things because he is studied the scriptures. A couple things we can be encouraged about. He is alive a long time after they were taken captive, and somebody must be teaching the scriptures for him to know it. So even though they were, they were taken captive, they must have found ways to study the scripture, because Ezra, decades and decades later, knows his scriptures. He's probably nervous because he would have read about the time that David moved the ark and did it, didn't do it the right way, and they reached out. They didn't put it on poles, and they reached out with their hands and grabbed it, and the guy died. And you remember how you think, whoa, God's really harsh there. Ezra would have known about that. And all of a sudden, he gets there, and he realizes, we don't have any Levites. The Levites were the main ones that were supposed to take care of the temple. They didn't show up. And so you can imagine him passing like campfire to campfire. He's having a great time. Oh, it's going to be great. Glad you came. Nice to see. Oh, good. You brought that chair. That's a good idea. Chatting up with people, encouraging them. And he gets, as he starts getting to the end of the circuit of the campfires, he's like, hey, uh, did I miss it? I haven't seen any Levites. Um, 
at some point, he realizes we got a problem. So he, he sends people to this place called Casifia. We don't know where that is, um, but it must have been a village, I'm guessing, or an area where they had uh, Levites that were there, I'm guessing, and we don't know who um, some of these people are, but he sends somebody to talk to them. And, and then you can see that by the good hand in verse 18, that phrase comes on us, he brought us a man of understanding. So that phrase is another one that I found really interesting. A man of understanding that could apply the truth of the time. Somebody that knew what was going on and knew how to deal with the not yet and what the challenges were, knew enough about the scripture to be able to do it. Think about it from the Levite's perspective. So um, I told you my great-grandfather came over from this little farm in Ireland and the only job they could get in New York City was working with hot rivets and there were, remember, you've seen the steel beams, and he was a guy, I think it was called a bucker or something, that was that caught the hot rivet in a can. Uh, I just remember stories that there's the, the guy that throws it, so he grabs it with the tongs, he throws it. My great-grandfather's job was to catch hot rivets, potentially high up on these high-rises, and hold them so the guy could hammer them in. So imagine now, years later, if someone came up to me and said, hey, you remember how your great-grandfather was a bucker? I want you to come to Jerusalem, or New York City in this case, and be a bucker. And I'm thinking, I don't want to do that. Uh, I'm all for history and everything and reenactment, but you're talking about me actually going and doing that with my life. The Levites hadn't been taking care of the temple for a long time. They found other things to do. We don't know why, but they didn't come to the camp out. They didn't want to go. They didn't want to go because maybe, and I don't know for sure, but maybe they didn't want to go do the job of cleaning up the temple. Maybe they had better jobs. Maybe like my family, each generation started going to school and got desk jobs so they didn't have to get hot rivets thrown at them 15 floors up in New York City. Maybe they did that. And I'm thinking, I don't want to go do that. It could have been. The thing we do know is they weren't suffering in Babylon like they were suffering in Egypt. In Egypt, they are making hot brick. They're making bricks standing in mud. And there's a place in Mexico where they go, we go where they still do that. So they're just doing this. And then they take the straw away, right? It's miserable in Egypt. I don't think it was so miserable here in Babylon. I think they, some of them maybe had it better there than they do remember in Jerusalem. So maybe they didn't want to go back. Could be a reason. But that's a challenge because they can't take care of the temple if they don't have Levites. So they've got this man of understanding that shows up. And um, we need people of understanding. We need people that understand the situation and make appropriate um, decisions based on it. And so a woman of understanding that came huge into play here that, that is Esther. Between... Um, Probably, if I had to guess, I would guess Ezra was a child when Esther shows up. If it's not, we can't be 100% sure, but it looks to me like the king she served was the king before Artaxerxes. And there's this 60 years or so when they're in between the last group that went and, or more and this group, and that's when Esther happens. At that time, the Persian Empire stretched all the way from India to Ethiopia. Now, it bends around the water, but... If you were to stretch it out, it's almost New York to L.A. It's a huge empire. And one woman 
changes the course for the Jews in that. And we may go back and study Esther, so I don't want to do like a whole bunch with it, but this is Esther 4. And she, it, Mordecai says to her, look, you need to go in there. And she says, um, she, she says, look, he has one law. He puts everyone to death if you walk in there, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king's palace for 30 days. Okay, so she has a decision to make. Because um, you'll remember uh, Haman is going to have all the Jews killed. And so there are communities of Jews. There's one they think of was in this island called Elephantine in, in, the, in the Nile. I mean, stretching all over there, all these Jews. And if you remember that story, they were about to be destroyed. They were about to, all their enemies were about to cut loose on them and destroy them. And Esther decides, um, she says, Mordecai says to her, um, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so Esther says, go gather all the Jews who are present and fast with me. My maids and I will fast likewise, and I will go into the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Ezra probably wouldn't have been there had Esther not made that decision, which she could not have done. She could have said, uh, she did. She initially said, I haven't been in in 30 days. The policy is he kills anyone that comes in asking without, you know, you guys have been nervous to go into like a boss's office or the principal's office or kids, you've been nervous to go ask your parents, like, you know, how you want to ask your parents something that you're pretty sure they'll say no and you're getting ready to do it and you realize that your dad is frustrated because he can't find a drill or something and you think to yourself, not a good time, right? Or you're smart and you just did all the chores and checked off your chore chart and then you go ask mom. Like, I know you kids aren't, are smart, right? Well, imagine if you walked into the kitchen and have you ever had your mom kind of get big-eyed at you when you walk into the kitchen and you ask something and then the eyes get big? I'm not, don't answer that because I'm sure there's not anyone in here, but they might. It might happen to you. And they get big-eyed. Imagine if the next step, if they, after you got big-eyed was just killed you. Just killed you. You're done. You know? So that's, that's what Esther's facing. Maybe not even the big eyes. Maybe just, she's done. Right? So she risks it. She goes in, and then all those people get saved. All those people get saved. And then Mordecai gets put in high command. So the Jews went from about to be wiped out to then they've got a guy near the top. Standard of living probably went up for the Jews. It probably was better in Babylon than they could have expected in Jerusalem. So there's a cost to them going back. And I'm saying all this because this scripture is all we get. We get one book, and we only get so many hundreds of people to follow. And we can go into this. The more we can get out of what it was really like, and keep in mind for Jesus, this was the last bit of action before four centuries of silence. So the closest Jesus could connect with people-wise would have been these group of writings that we're doing. And so this is something Jesus would have known. And the more we can know about it ourselves, the better able we're going to be to walk with the Lord. So Esther says, yes, I will risk my life. I'll risk the big eyes. I'll risk death. And she goes in. The king grants her wish. And then the Jews now are in a much better spot. 
And the problem with doing better, like if you have nothing, you don't have as much to risk. But if you are wealthier and well put and you have to think, well, yeah, it'd be nice to seek the kingdom. And yeah, Jerusalem's important, but I mean, I just got this recliner and, and we just put this addition on. And I mean, I just got the health insurance just got to, and we got that. We just fixed the, I just fixed the transmission here on the car. I can't go. Um, that's the kind of thing, minus the transmission, um, and things like that, that they were arguing about, they were thinking about. These are real people that had to give up their lives to, to obey the Lord. And so there they go. Um, and now you get to see into Ezra a little bit. And this, this part, I think, is interesting that he even includes it. He talks about how um, he's ashamed because he's got a, he's got a problem here. He's realizing, and you can bet people said it. You can bet people said it. Stuff like this. Oh, I had an uncle that just came back last year, and about three days out, there's this group of bandits, and they come in, and you haven't thought about safety. I'm sure of it. Or there's no way he wasn't talking about this around the campfire. That. He's got to decide, is he going to ask for escorts or not? And so he says, I'm ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help along the road because I said the hand of our God, there's that phrase again that's, I don't want to say unique to him, but certainly one he likes a lot, um, is upon all those for good who seek him and his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. He may have read, I think it's Isaiah 52, you can check me on that, but where it talks about um, that God says he'll be their front and rear guard. He may have been remembering that scripture that, okay, God says, you know, we get led to exile, then he's leading us out. He could have had some doubt about that passage. He's like, does that mean the group that went already? Does that still apply to me? You know, but he, he's, he doesn't know what to do, and he puts it in scripture, he, he lets you know he's ashamed. He's not sure what to do. So he does the wise thing, and they fast and pray, and he answered their prayer. He decides not to do it, uh, to ask for the escort. Now, there's a real neat thing in here. Um, Ezra shows up again in Nehemiah, and we'll get to it when I teach it. Uh, he shows up a little bit later. You get to see him pretty much just teaching the scriptures. In this passage, he's a leader, and he's leading according to biblical principles, but he's not getting to teach yet. He's mostly like a, you know, a general leading them out. But he know, I know he studied the scriptures. I know he knows them uh, really well. And he, he's got, then you'll see him with Nehemiah. And when he gets with Nehemiah, he gets to teach the scriptures mainly. And Nehemiah is more of the general. But Nehemiah accepts the military escort. So when we make principles, and this is where the doctrine comes in, there, we have to use all of Scripture to make, um, a, make a principle. So in this one, I could read and say, we should never use the military to protect us. I could make a doctrine out of this. Ezra says, no, God's our rear guard. We don't do the military thing if we're Jesus followers. You read Nehemiah. And Nehemiah accepts it. Now, the situations were slightly different, but basically that's the end result. Well, then, if I make a principle out of Nehemiah's, then we always do it. And you could see how two groups of believers could disagree about something as fundamental of are you allowed to carry a gun or not, right from these two passages. And what you can see is they must have figured out how to get along. Imagine if Nehemiah were sitting with Ezra. Ezra saying, I'm ashamed. I don't know what to do. Nehemiah's like, Get the escort. 
don't think about it. I've been out there. There's bandits, you know. If Ezra were talking to Nehemiah, would he have said, did you read Isaiah 52? I mean, could you? They learn how to work together. They learn how to work together in Nehemiah. We're going to see it. And I would like to encourage us to be able to look at doctrines and understand what's core and then what's something that's a little bit more of a catwalk and be able to have the language to disagree. Because we didn't do so great, not just not say in our church, but just evangelicals in general the last four or five years with understanding the difference between a major doctrine and a minor doctrine. We got confused. And we saw those catwalks, which a catwalk would be, for man, number two, are we allowed to carry arms? That would have been a catwalk. A church that supports that, a church that doesn't support that's a catwalk. But that's an example of one that can be a hot topic in different parts, especially where we work in Mexico, out west in Arizona, along the border. There's a lot of hot topics that touch on military or no military involvement. And we've got to wrestle with it, but it's not a core doctrine. And so as Christians struggle through how to get along, we've got to learn not just what to think, but how to think about things when we're drawing from the scripture. We've got to compare scripture with scripture. And this is one of those cases that we're going to see it play out between two guys who obviously disagreed on the way to do something um, significant like this. All right, so these are the Levites. And we're going to end with the Levites. The Levites... They're there. Remember, they, they weren't there in the beginning of the camp out. Um, again, imagine the conversations because they sent a bunch of people back to talk to them. In the list of names who get sent back, there's a lot of Nathans. It'd be good to send Nathan. Like I would send Nathan Torrance to talk somebody into doing something because he's good. He is good. So there's several Nathans that get sent back to talk these Levites into coming. I can imagine Nathan getting said, hey, I mean, think how great it's going to be. I mean, you're going to get to to butcher the animals. You're going to get to carry firewood. Uh, You're going to get to carry water. Um, You guys get to be the guards in case enemies attack. I mean, it it could be great. And, and, And my wife thinking, what? What are you saying? Well, Nathan's, the Nathan's work, there's several of them. They convince these Levites to show, Levites to show up, and they're there. And now he's talking to them, and he says, you're holy. And so he's casting a vision for being holy, as holy as the vessels. And he's giving them a higher calling in case they've forgotten because they didn't do it. They, their grandparents didn't do it. Probably their great-grandparents, none of them were actually in the temple. So he's reminding them of who they are. And he tells them what they need to do. Um, and Ezra is very specific. He, he, this gold and silver, because the king gives them money. And the talks I bet you had with people were, look, this is a lot of money. And I want you to think about the weight of it. As you look through there, a talent, they argue, what, maybe 60 pounds. There are thousands of these, thousands of pounds of money. And you can imagine the money stack, the gold stack, and somebody saying, hey, look, uh, my cousin's in Jerusalem. You mind if I just Venmo him the money rather than the physical challenge of hauling this money a lot of you guys are backpackers you ever ask someone to they say hey do you mind carrying this for me and you're like well that's five extra pounds that's going to slow me down we have hikers here remember aaron hubbard when you hike the the trail you know five pounds makes a whole bunch of difference you don't necessarily want to do this trip you're a levite you show up you're getting the talk about being holy and that's great i'm still not sure i want to go talking about the job hey here's your couple hundred pounds of gold to carry for the next four months 
they might have just balked at that. But Ezra is real specific. He, he counts the money, and then he's going to turn it in, and he's going to include these guys. They're getting to bring offerings to the temple and fulfill the scripture. And as they're going out, something must have changed in them. They stepped up to the holy calling. And so the question that I'm going to ask for us, and I'm just going to skip ahead um, one more to, to, to you guys and ask, um, when you live the life you're living, you know, imagine like being a Levite and stepping into this holy calling. Those of you who are Jesus followers have said, look, it's no longer Christ, uh, I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And you're trying to live out your life. And we hit challenges. We hit things that trip us up and we get stuck in holes sometimes. And we need to have a proper perspective. Uh, coming out of the pandemic, I've never seen so much depression and discouragement, anxiety, just as a wave across probably the world, but specifically our culture. And we need to know an appropriate amount of what we hold, what's our part. And so this Psalm 127, uh, I love the Psalms because they get right at it. You know, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So you get those pictures. We don't deal with invasion like they did, but it, it, uh, a group of horsemen coming over the horizon was a real thing that could happen any day. And so they knew more about guarding the city. Um, certainly we build houses, so we get that. But the second one, it's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. What's the bread of sorrows? How many of you have laid in bed, about to fall asleep, and stare up the ceiling and start mulling over something that didn't go well or something you're stressed about? And you just feed yourself the bread of sorrows. The bread of sorrows, like, oh, I forgot my life is miserable because this. You're busy all day and you're laying there and then sort of hits you. What in your kingdom is not going according to your will? And then we get nervous or we start anticipating what will go wrong in our kingdom. And the bigger our kingdoms get, the more we have to stress about. Jesus says, you know, he'll feed you like the birds of the air. Um, I sometimes forget to feed my chickens, you know, and he says, look at the birds. My chickens go to bed every night, even the nights that I forget to feed them. And when I go out to get firewood, I don't hear them walking around the coop going, man, that guy's really busy. Like he's carrying a bunch of crock pots in and out. I noticed they're moving chairs at the church. He flies to Mexico, he changes time. Like, is he going to remember to feed us? Uh, uh, do we make a plan B here? I never hear them talking. Once it's dark, they're asleep. I would like to have the level of faith that my chickens have when the darkness comes. And just be able to say, look, I trust the Lord. I'm not going to stay up at late at night eating the bread of sorrows over what's not going right in my kingdom. I am an eternal being, secure because of salvation of Christ Jesus. I live forever with Jesus, and I have a hope of resurrection and of life to come, and the story gets better and better. And if things like our heater is out and it got cold, there's things to think about, you know, um, transmissions and whatnot. But it's vain for you to rise up early, and some of you do this. Some of you get up early to stress about things, right? Now, we've changed. I mean, this was written 3,000 years ago. We're far more advanced than those humans back then. We don't stress about things we can't control anymore. We know better or do we, right? So this nails it. 
I betcha most of us have done this, and it's vain, stupid, waste of your time. The invitation for life in the kingdom is not that you ignore those things, but that we base ourselves in what's our part and what's God's part and find the joy that Ezra found. And you see he's nervous. He's ashamed. He's not sure about the troops. He doesn't have it all sorted out. He doesn't know how it's going to work out. But he repeatedly said the phrase, the good hand of God was upon me. Do you sense that the good hand of God is upon you? And is it a good hand? I'm going to pray for us. And then, Johnny, do you want to come up? Lord, I ask that you would grant us the capacity to sense the, your good hand upon us. You say the number are, of our hairs you have numbered. You say that you love us and that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Lord, may we know this truth and may we apply it to our lives. May we step into the holy calling. Scripture says, be holy because I am holy and we want to step into that. We know it's good and true. We know that eternal life is available to us through faith in you. And for those in this room who have not put their faith in Christ, I pray this would be the day that they would recognize that you died for each one of us on the cross if we're willing to step into faith. And only through you can we have the good life that you promise. Thank you for Ezra. Thank you for his willingness to write down these words. And I pray that truth and light would be something that characterizes us as individuals and as a body. In Jesus' name, amen.